doctors and nurses. There's no continued certification. There's continued education hours each year. Drives me nuts, I guess, for like ATMC accreditation for schools that the instructor is like, oh yeah, 15 hours and there's no real requirement of like who the training's from. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting, thought-provoking episode of the Jaded Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff, and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt, I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. So pour yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. And we are back. Welcome again to another episode of the Jaded Mechanic Podcast. With me tonight is a good friend of mine, Tanner Brandt. Tanner, say hello. Hey, everybody. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. It's a pleasure. So you had a good day today? I did. I had a busy day. Got my butt kicked a little bit. On that Toyota? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were just talking about that. You, I, I shared the video. Is that kind of a... You say that one kicked your butt. That's not your hardest diags, right? Is it just what no, that one's so hard? So anytime that you have a uh, input problem and you don't know what the inputs are supposed to be, it's always uh, pain. Uh, that's becoming more and more of a thing. So it's kind of, I guess my everyday life is getting my butt kicked, right? So being a mobile diagnostic guy and programming uh, guy, the programming stuff normally isn't too bad unless it goes sideways, but for the most part, it doesn't go sideways. It's the diagnostic stuff. And there's certainly, you know, sometimes I get lucky and I show up and it's a fuse or something, but as of lately, a lot of times it's some kind of strange input problem like this one. And we were talking about, you know, not knowing what the inputs are Mm -hmm. supposed to be not having any way to find out what the inputs are supposed to be. So if it's a parasitic draw problem or a window problem, um, you know, or something is staying on a cluster is staying on like that. Sometimes not having the information needed in service info just makes it tough. And I kind of get called in as I guess the, like, I don't want to say, I guess savior, I guess would be the thing. And everyone's like, Oh, this guy's going to fix it. But I don't know any more than anybody else does. And we, if, if they had the information needed, the inputs, they'd fix it too. So for me, sometimes they call me and they're like, oh, he'll figure it out. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm, you know, it's, <laughs> we all have the same information. I'm no smarter than anybody else. So it just means that I'm going to have to sit there and get my butt kicked for a while. So the name of the company that you, that it's your business is? Autodiag Clinic. Autodiag Clinic. And you're out of North Carolina. Yeah, North Carolina, South Carolina. I am right on the border. Oh, border person. Okay. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm building a new house and it's a South Carolina address and I could throw a baseball into my neighbor's yard and hit the North Carolina border. Oh, right on. Cool. And how long have you been there? Five years and originally from upstate New York, just across Lake Ontario from you. Oh, really? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right on. Right on. <laughs> yeah. I'm originally from a small town called Sodus Point, uh, and the last place I lived was Oswego. Okay, cool. I've, I've been through Oswego a long time ago, and um, I mean, yeah, I, I'm familiar with that area quite well, honestly. Like, it's, uh, we used to cross, if we were going to go, we'd cross over into Watertown, right? And uh, yep. so that area, upstate New York is, you know, we've been to Lake Placid a couple of times and stuff like that. So I'm pretty familiar with the area. It's been, oh, I'm trying to think, uh, other than to fly to AST, I hadn't been stateside since pre-COVID, right? Because my communist country kind of shut all that down. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, so what made you leave upstate New York and go to essentially Carolinas? Yeah, so weather was a big factor, knowing that I wanted to open the mobile business. So I had a shop in New York for about four years, and I also did mobile repair, but not for like normal customers. I did mobile repair for the construction companies on like small engine tow behind equipment uh, and then fleet companies. So we would kind of do like fleet maintenance and stuff for them uh, and then had a regular shop too in New York. So did that there, knew that I wanted to switch over and kind of just do diagnostics. Uh, that's really difficult to do in my opinion. Some people do it. I mean, there's a lot of guys in Minnesota and stuff that do it, but it would have been tough in New York. Uh, not a lot of like big shops, a lot of shops yeah. that don't have any space, don't have any parking. Yeah. So getting there, knowing the car could be covered in snow, trying to work when it's, you know, zero degrees out and snowing and blowing wouldn't have been great. So not really an easy way to do it in New York. And then taxes are cheaper here, which allowed us to, you know, buy, we're talking about building a new house, uh, having less property taxes here was just a thing of we could afford more and kind of have more of the life we wanted to the have not spent as much money and uh, it certainly i don't know this area has changed a lot just in the five years that i've moved it's very up and coming so things have gotten more expensive uh but most of the reason weather uh being able to open the business uh very business friendly area and yeah uh, cheaper cost those, those winters in oswego they're no they're a lot different eh? they're cold yeah compared <laughs> yeah. to what you guys get like i know everybody always is like you you know, I'm bragging on Canadian winters or something and Minnesota gets cold too. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, but you know what it's like if you're sitting that close to the lake, right? It's a different thing. Like it's, you get some chill, man. I can remember, well, I haven't done it now in the last couple of years, but uh, like five years ago, I was still doing road service for, you know, a truck shop on the side of the road. Yep. And I can remember being out there lots of nights, 10 o'clock at night in a blizzard, trying to get somebody's truck started. And we get those blizzards and it'd be, you'd put on, you'd suit up at six in the morning and it'd be just one stop all day long. Next one, next one, next one. Some truck frozen, broken down, right? Get under there, crawl underneath, like try to get it started, try to get the air tanks, you know let out so that they would build air again like it was just it was non-stop it was you know i've changed so many batteries and so many connections and just starters on the side of the road that it was like you know with your hands are numb right and it's just yep you know i i it, it, it's been tempting lots of times to go someplace yeah or so but 
and, and getting slush sprayed on you. And I drove one of the places I worked back home had tow trucks and a, uh, we had tow trucks and a service van. Now they got, I think two service vans. And like you said, there's days where, you know, you'd hop in the truck at six in the morning and leave. And I, one of like the last, I think like months that I worked there, I was so overwhelmed with it. I had gotten a call from the guy that owned the shop's father and he had gotten stuck with a snowmobile at like 1130 at night. And he was in a, I call them a muck ditch, they're muck fields and they fill in with snow. And sometimes you don't know how deep they are. So at any rate, he got stuck and I went out and I rescued him, got his snowmobile out at 1130 at night. And I was soaked. I was up to water, like up to my stomach. And I stuck all my stuff by the fire, got to bed at like 1 a.m., got up, got to work at 6 a.m. And the first call is a car in another muck ditch on the side of the road. And I like look at the guy and I felt bad. So I afterwards, I realized I was kind of mean to him. But I'm like, I swear, if I fall through this water, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And I like no more than walked over into the ditch to hook the car and just went right through right up to my chest. And I was soaked for the day. I got back to the shop and just threw everything in the shop. And I'm like, I'm going home. And that was it. <laughs> well, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those. You know, we'd get four or five really good days like that every season, right? And it really tests your metal. And then it's just like, okay, well, you know, people. I don't know if it's like every truck that skipped the fall maintenance and didn't bother to check the batteries or whatever just has to break down, right, or something like that. But that's just the way it is, and it's just, you know, it. I don't, it, it's not super complex work, right? It's just, it's just tough. It's like you're fighting. It, it's miserable work. It's you're cold and you're getting beat up. And it, like I was saying, getting sprayed with slush on the side of the road, people, you know, then you got to lay down underneath it. The road's wet. It's, and I think, you know, people that work in the North, I think that's what makes this job harder. Uh, it's significantly easier in warmer climates. I would say obviously rust. I mean, that's something you and I have dealt with our whole lives up there. And I moved here. I just sent a picture to my dad, like a week ago, I was working on a 2002, uh, Chevy pickup. I was programming a PCM on it and it was like mint condition. And I crawled underneath it and sent him pictures. And, uh, the shop owner is a buddy of mine. He goes, what are you doing? I go, I gotta send a picture of this to my dad. Like everything was just immaculate. So there's no rust. There's no, you know, you're not getting dripped on by salt and slush. So I think it's a, big difference too of like your mental health too i would say like working in a shop here versus working in a shop back there now you can obviously work with great people in both areas but man the work is just a lot harder up there and when you're you know you're having a bad day and you hit your head on something and the slush just falls on you and it just ruins your day and it's just i don't know definitely harder i think working on stuff in the north even the corrosion is different right when we add in like how many uh, how many different when I talk to guys and it's like I'd see up here I'd see connectors that were prone to to problems right on caravans and on dodge trucks and all this kind of stuff up here because of their exposure uh, and you talk to them down there and it's like well we don't see that and you're like what yeah. do you, mean? you don't see the TCM get all thick when it's putting the fender roll on a caravan like you know like down no we just pull the fender roll back and it's and it's clean and dry and no we'd see them they're swelled up like they all look like the ford you know fuel pump driver modules right like every module on the yep. back then so it, it's i don't want to say that we have it tougher 
it's just different, different situations. Right. And it's, it's cool, but it's, you know, I think sometimes people don't understand, you know, when it takes a little bit longer to, to account for those elements or to eliminate those variables or work around those variables. Cause like, I like cars that are undercoated to last, but I hate being covered in that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, <laughs> it's cause my, my work shirts are short sleeves. So it's like, it's all through my forearm hair. It's like, it's in my beard. It's, you know, you've had your head stuck up around the drive shaft and you're trying to get an oxygen sensor out and you've got that all slimed into your face. Like it's just, you know, where you could go down South and undercoating the cars just dry underneath. Like we don't need undercoating. So exactly. It's a big difference. And I say people don't think about the mental health side of it, of just like what that does to you, how difficult it is and how frustrating it is. And, you know, like, just an oxygen sensor, something that's a, could be a five minute job here. Or I shouldn't say five. It's like a 30 second job here. Reach up and quick break it loose and unplug it. And that's that. And up there, it's, you know, heating it up and then break it free and then cool it down. So you don't pull yeah. the threads out of yeah. it while it's hot. And so now you're waiting for it to cool. You cool it down. Now you're, you know, you're trying to get it out. You get stuff all over your arms and it just ruins your day and makes you so upset. So it definitely, I would say it's harder work up there and not just harder work, but just, (laughs) I don't want to say like harder, I guess it is definitely harder backbreaking, but just definitely harder mentally Mm -hmm. than working in other parts of the country for sure. So tell me what's a typical day for you. Yeah. So depending on, I guess, how everything's scheduled, I always do programming in the morning uh, and all the diagnostics in the afternoon. So I try to, it's, I think the hardest thing for me with this business to uh, switch about my personality was I'm always the person that was like, okay, the hardest thing is what I have to get done first. And then I'll have the easy stuff. So when I was working in a shop, I wanted hard stuff in the morning and then my afternoon would be easy, but I can't do that here with the mobile business because you got to get the easy stuff done so you make money for the day and then you do the diagnostic stuff in case it kicks your butt and you don't figure it out so that you've made money for the day if you do diagnostic stuff in the morning and it takes you all day and you didn't make any money so normal day get up in the morning uh i try to do four to six cars a day Mm -hmm. uh, normally somewhere around four uh Anything less than that is okay too. Uh, some guys will say they got to do six a day or something, but anywhere from two to six, I'm pretty happy. Yeah. Uh, four is a normal day. So get up, do some programming. Uh, and then normally, like one, two o'clock, I'll uh, grab whatever cars I've got to diagnose for the day and go do that. And so I deal with uh, repair shops, collision shops, new car dealers. I used to deal with used car dealers. Don't deal with used car dealers anymore. The used car market down here is a disaster. Mm -hmm. So kind of nice get to hang out with uh, other like-minded people. I kind of treat all of my customers as friends, I would say. I basis that we're a team so it's kind of nice to show up at their shop talk to them for a couple minutes program the car if i've got six cars a day then i'm in a hurry and i can't really do that but uh, most of the time i try to talk with the shop owners check on them see how they're doing i ask each one you know are you busy are you not busy what's going on and Mm -hmm. so yeah that's kind of what my day looks like so you said before when you were working in a shop give us like what kind of shop was that um was it like an independent was it a dealer chain store 
Yeah. So uh, I've done both did dealerships. Uh, so first place I ever worked out of college, or I should say, I guess in college, I was a Toyota T10 student, uh, worked at a Lexus dealer and a Toyota dealer in college. And then pre-college, always worked at independent shops. Mm-hmm. So Worked in independent shops first, went to college, switched to dealers because of needing hours for Toyota, um, got done with college, worked at a couple other dealers, uh, Chrysler dealer and Hyundai dealer, and decided didn't like the dealership anymore. (laughs) Most of the dealerships up by me, I guess I would say, were not like well run. Everybody hated each other. The atmosphere was terrible uh, and, and pretty tough to make money with very different too up there january february was slow pretty much like you might as well just go home you had tire season and then after tire season was done you had january february did not really do anything september and october sucked because everybody after their kids go to school has no money and then you know january everybody blows their budget during christmas so they're not fixing anything unless it's towed in will not run right so yeah, until you get your snow tires season, like I said, people don't like we were just talking off air. It drives the industry up here. It really does. You know, like it, March, April, you start to get a lot more flow back into the shop again. You start to get busy. You sell some work off of a tire job or whatever, right? You see those kind of semi-annual inspections and all that kind of stuff, and and it drives some of the business. But yeah, January flat rate. I just starved. It was just, you just expected it, you know, and the same as September, September and January were your two toughest months. And yeah, you know, the dealership, I've always been, you you know, uh, I, I don't regret working them because you get to really know a product inside and out, right? Like that's the beauty. Yep. But um, I hate the culture. I just hate it. I just, you know, you just, I understand to some point why they have to do it, right? Because it is a, it's a production machine. The the overhead to turn the lights on every day is astronomical, right? To pay for all that inventory just sitting there, astronomical. But I don't agree anymore with the way they just look at everyone as just a just a a number, you know. I mean, yep, exactly. You're just a tech number, and it sucks. You can get a lot. You can learn a lot. Get some really good experience. But I, I just until I think that they, you know, pull their heads out of their butts figuratively and see that you know they're going to get hit the worst they already are i feel with the tech shortage they're they have to change their business operation model their whatever you want to call it It, otherwise they're not going to have anything i specifically remember like when i was in the t10 program the deal was you were supposed to be given a mentor Mm -hmm. and the mentor was supposed to stand behind you tell you what to do and i was 17 years old i walked into the Lexus store, they put my name up on the wall like I was a regular tech and just started giving me work. Like I should not have been A, I should not have been touching people's cars to begin with. I could do oil changes and stuff, yeah. but like there was no oversight and I didn't learn anything. The only thing I learned was that everybody in that dealer hated each other. And I learned not to turn in uniforms because if you turned in a uniform, you never got any of them back. Those were the two things that I learned at that dealer. Like, oh, and not to uh 
overfill an oil bucket. I did do that yeah. while I was there. The perfect example of like the, I don't know way it was the guy that was supposed to be my mentor. I had headphones on because everybody there had headphones on because they didn't want to talk to each other. So I had headphones on and I'm doing an oil change on a car and he walks over and he just taps me on the shoulder and then points behind him and laughs and walks away. And I'm like, huh? And I turn around and there's just a geyser coming out of my oil bucket. So I did learn that there, but like that was a lesson that realistically I shouldn't have had to learn. Somebody should have been like, hey, make sure each morning you drain this so that this doesn't happen. Nah, Now, granted, I've learned that and remembered it for the rest of my life, but still I would have remembered it as well. (laughs) Somebody had just shown me. Yeah, pretty pretty so, pretty big red flag about the culture though right when you walk into a, any i mean you see it like you go to a bunch of different shops right if you see a shop like that where nobody wants to talk to anyone else you know guys like you said guys are going around with headphones on like that's wow i mean we i've been in some shops where there was definitely clicks you know like we didn't talk to them and they didn't talk to us and but never where it was like every man was out to avoid any kind of interaction with anyone else, right? Like it just, it wasn't, never got that toxic. It What what happened there, I blame it on. And again, like I didn't know this stuff back then. And now I look at it because I go to so much training and sit in on all this management training. And I understand that some of these ideas that the dealership training people are preaching like, is not good. It's not a good idea. Uh, that one was a team flat rate system. Yeah. So in theory, they're like, oh, this will be great. It's well, no, all it did is if somebody had a bad day, everybody was against him. So then, you know, so-and-so took the day off. That's going to screw our hours up. And even though he had vacation or oh, so-and-so hurt his hand, that's going to slow us down. Or this guy got stuck on this car. Like, is it, so it just made everybody out to get each other. And then looking at it, I guess even when it's, not a team flat rate system when you're in a shop and the work is slow, like we were talking about September and January, February. Now everybody's fighting for work and all that's my car. They took it away from me. And like, so they don't think about the atmosphere that it creates, I guess. And looking back, that should have been a sign right there of like how the dealers were run. The only thing I hate worse than flat rate is flat rate team. And I never had to work it because I as much as we all maybe were competing against each other in any dealer I've ever been, if they all sat us down and said, okay, you're going to be teams, there would have been a revolt right there. There's just no way because they're like, you know how it, it'd be like picking teams in dodgeball, right? Like it, there's always four or five at the end of it that you don't want on either team, right? And it's that's just toxic. And uh, the idea that they think that that – boost production i think it's like the last stop gap that they can do before they say flat rate definitely is not working in our shop but they don't know how to change right because yep. i don't want my hours pooled right so that this you know team does this and and we're all shooting for a bonus on an already crappy hourly rate right like i don't want my hours pooled i want if i get just to hit a string of luck i want it to be me my string of luck if i hand a string of bad luck it's still mine you know like i don't want everyone else grumbling oh look at that you know if if he hadn't got all those crappy jobs our team would have you know beat team b right that's just it just adds more to it i don't want that right like i want to be 
the the idea when everybody says, you know, it's a team, it's not a team. You're not a team player as a flat rate tech in a shop, right? We all have to kind of, I've seen those shops where if a car needs to be pushed in, I've seen the guys have to push it in himself because there's a, like, he's so hated that nobody wants to go out there and help the guy because he's a jerk. Yep. But, uh, you know, uh, you can't, you can't. You can't have that. It just doesn't work. But I'm amazed how some shops can pay. Well, I know how they do it because somebody in dispatch or whatever is watching very closely and they're keeping everybody pretty close to one another. I think that's the only way that it works because otherwise I've worked with some real sharks and uh, not a whole lot of regard for, you know, selling like they did this sold they just sold all day long and they did the work and they did the work but it was like as soon as you allow one to come to that level then everybody is looked at in the same way and said well how come like he becomes a golden child well he's turning 60 a week how come you're not turning 60 a week well you know he kind of he's pretty aggressive with the pen what are you talking about uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's just, it's unhealthy. So I uh, thank God I've never worked team never, but yeah, you know, I, I worked at another dealer that we had that golden child. And when I, I worked there in college and then I went back there years later, this is actually, I moved home. I had came down to South Carolina for six months to work at a shop. Actually, it was the shop I was at today. Mm-hmm worked for him for six months to help him. I basically came down to kind of train his guys. And then I moved back home. And when I moved back home, I went back to work at that Toyota dealer. And at that time they had one of the golden childs, so I'll call them. And they kind of told me like, Oh, this guy's turning 80 hours a week. You should be able to do it. And after a week, I immediately realized what was going on. And he just like destroyed everything. Like my daily events were let him do some things in the morning and then my afternoons were okay i've got to extract this broken bolt out of mm-hmm. a caliper i've got to extract this broken bolt out of a differential <laughs> like most of my day was spent like fixing stuff and then after a month i'm like i don't have any hours and so i kind of went to the service manager and i'm like i got no hours and he's like well you know you have to work harder and i'm like I showed him all this stuff. I'm like, this is what I've done every single day that I haven't got paid for. And it's cleaning up after this person. I'm like, I'm totally fine with that. Don't have an issue with it. You know, part of a team here to help, but like somebody's got to figure out how to pay me for that. Cause I can't just work all day. <laughs> do that. So yeah, it's certainly, I don't know. That's, I guess my issue that I see with the dealers is they're just not always well run in in their defense too sometimes they become a uh, revolving door and service manager may not you know be the best person he's not there long term uh techs aren't there long term it's kind of you know difficult and it's like you said it's a big machine you know a lot of overhead and sometimes there's not enough oversight i guess i would say and like the actual owner of the dealer um sometimes the owner of the dealer the dealer got left to him and they didn't have anything to do with it until it got left to them. They don't know anything about it. So that was always my issue. And that's kind of why I started to switch and move away from dealers, I guess, and started going towards the independent. Uh, and then, you know, once I got involved with IETN and realized mm-hmm. what was going on in, you know, the independent and learned about training and started being able to go to training and stuff, that was when I really kind of just realized that like the days of dealership work for me were done and that you didn't have to 
you know, hate your life. It, it's bad enough. We all got to work every day, right? If, if we, we'd all, I'm sure like to do something else. Now I enjoy working on cars. I always did. And I am fortunate. I'm one of those people. I would say that, you know, I, I love what I do. And so it's not really worked to me, but at the same time, I, I like riding my bike. If I could ride my bike every day too, instead of doing anything, I would probably do that. Oh, so dude, if, if the Bassmaster would sign me up, just give me an opportunity, right. To, to scrub in for somebody that can't make it next week. It wouldn't matter if I made, you know, seven figures fixing cars right and they tell you you're, you might make twenty thousand to fish that tournament i'd be i'd you'd hear the the boat fire up right now i'd be gone like it's just yeah i i can fix cars but i mean what i truly love to do is you know that so the trend i saw in the dealerships and i think it's happening more and more is that the dealer groups have like a management team and when they have a, a low performing or a failing dealer they bring in that whole team right a manager for parts a manager for sales a manager for service a, ma- a general manager and then then you see the cutting block come out right and it's yeah it's scary and the dealer that i worked at for so long they're going through right now they're being bought by a bigger dealer group in ottawa and um that's i think is what's going to happen in there and it's going to be i mean i've been gone from there 10 years now but i'm still i talk to quite a bit of the guys right and um it'll be interesting to see how the chips fall when it's done yeah but that's what i found is like this you know the the nissan dealer i was at the same thing it got bought out they have they brought a team over from another dealer they start to turn this around turn that around and you see some people that were like some people get treated better some people get recognized as okay this person was being held back and then others it's just like you know they're they're gone like there was no hope for them and it's they call that a building process but i've never really seen it build anything but profits for you know (laughs) the the new the dealer group i've never seen it ever rebuild the the culture in the shop right i've never seen it fix that so yep and and sometimes like they don't know the 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 dealer group that they hired or management group that they hired might not be the right you know, people to come in and do it. Uh, you know, sometimes you're, you make a bad judgment call on a hire. Sometimes you make a bad judgment call on a coach. Uh, I see it because I deal with a hundred and well over 160 shops right now. And I have shops that work with management groups that are great. I have shops that work with ones that get marched into the fire. And I kind of know, I guess, because I'm involved obviously in the training side of when I see a shop sign up, I will go in and be like, Hey, watch out for this. And like, particularly uh, one of them recently got involved with a management company. And I told him, I says, just be aware that a lot of times their shops end up becoming revolving doors and they lose employees. And the last time I was at a shop, he's like, I lost two employees. And I thought about what you said. And I'm like, it's and it has to do with the workload that they put the shop under and the workload that they put the techs under not so much like that they treat the guys like crap or tell them to fire them but they just 
put the techs under a lot of stress, put the owner under a lot of stress, and that leads to environment problems. And then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they start, people start leaving. So, at any rate, you know, sometimes the dealers don't realize that, or the dealer principal that hires X company doesn't realize that maybe that's not the right move. They saw all over Facebook or all over wherever that, oh, that's the best company. Well, it might have just have been the company that spent the most money on marketing to get yeah. out there. Right. I mean, we there's a couple of big players. And and in the industry that and we're not going to mention names. I don't. We don't need to. But it's like, do you see? Because again, you see a lot more shops than I do. Do you see some of the what they call coaching tactics or whatever coaching methods in that's trickling down into the into the independent sector? Does it seem like it's a lot of what has already just been done in a dealer? Some of it has. There's a lot of, so there's two different methodologies, I guess I would say, just to like simplify it. Mm -hmm. There's making sure that your margins are good and you're being profitable on every single car. And then there's the just do as many cars as possible and your margins will follow. So the just do as many cars as you can. That's always, in my opinion, what's kind of been like the dealership model. And because of that, then they're not paying attention to, are they actually profitable? In those shops, my opinion, I see all of them struggle with profits. They always are busy, uh, but they're the shops that don't have money to send people to training or they're struggling to send people to train. They're not going to shut down and send, you know, four people. Uh, And I always kind of give them a hard time. I go, look, this is pretty stressful. Like you're trying to feed this machine. You need, you know, let's say I'm just throw a number out there. Let's say 500 cars a month or something they want to get. And then you have another shop that's like, ah, if we do 50 cars a month, I'm really happy. And they're super profitable because they're like looking at every single car, maximizing profit off of each car, setting customers up. So they know, okay, next month I'm going to need this, this, and this, or, you know, in 3000 miles, I'm going to need this, this, and this, and really kind of building that culture and building that customer base and stuff where the other ones are just trying to take in as much as they can. So there's definitely some trickle down there. Um, I haven't seen any of the, well, I shouldn't say that. I've seen a couple dealership trainers try to bridge the the gap and come into the independents, but not too many. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, it's a different, if it's a different world, right? Because we forget when you're at the dealer, the customer comes in a lot of the time and they have a warranty complaint, but at the same time that they're there, they're going to get their service done. Cause it's due anyway. Right. And it's just like, Oh, I got this squeak noise or I got this rattle or whatever, or this clunk or something. Um, I'm coming up on an oil change. I'll get it looked at when I'm there. That's the whole reason that I think that they see as many recalls and warranty work now in, in cars is I think that is absolutely planned for retention at the dealership. I don't think there's any, cause you can't tell me when they're building this stuff and they're engineering and they're going through R and D that they go, they know that that's going to be a problem area. They know that's going to be a weak point, right? They know that that tie rod is going to not last as an example, but it's like, well, you know, we'll get them back in the dealer. We'll sell them an oil change. We'll sell them some. I think it's completely, totally engineered, you know, whereas when you're an independent, you know what that's like. It's like they're, they're not bringing it to you until it, they want to service it. Or it's really broke. It's just those are the two yep. things. They're not coming in because it's, you know, they can live with something that's out of warranty. You know, they can live with that annoying, like a wind noise, right? Once it's out of warranty, you don't see too many people fixing it, right? It's it's It does get done, 
But I mean, it's, it's just the reach over and turn the radio up. Right. But so the one you're in an independent, they're coming in because they legitimately need that car looked at there. It won't run right. It doesn't stop right. It doesn't start half the time. You know, they want it fixed. So they, we have to be much more diligent about how we treat that customer because it's a legit thing for them. They're actually willing to pay money to get it repaired. And that was that was something I struggled with because it was like, you know, I, I, I'm just by nature, I'm quick to judge and I make too many assumptions in life, right? And it's like somebody's coming into an independent shop and they're they're to me, they're complaining about something that's not that big of a deal. But you realize, well, the, the door rate's over 100 bucks an hour. They're coming in to complain about it. They're going to spend a couple hundred to get this resolved minimum. It must really bug them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Where, so that that took some adjustment for me to go from, from the dealer to that. Or, you know, like, you know, on the dealership, we always think a lot of time it's just it's operator error. They just don't know how something is supposed to work, right? This I can't get my phone to link to the radio and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, but I mean, when you're coming to in the independent, they're not dreaming this up. It's legit happening just because you can't duplicate it. They didn't imagine it. It's like, it's when they say the car, you know, it it just wouldn't start. It's they're serious. It just didn't start. And then, you know, it's in your bay and it starts a hundred times, right? Like, how do you go and, how do you go and it was hard for me to keep my 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 attitude right to to process into the the diagnostic portion of trying to get to the bottom of it right in the dealership that'd be like no fault found kick it out the door go get something that paid and and roll on i'm not ashamed to say that that's what without telling us that's what is expected because you know how that is you go to the tower and they go did you make it a headway on that no I, I'm I'm frazzled, man. I don't know what's going on. Okay, well, put it on the back burner for now. Here, take this, and and we need this done. That's how the dealership yeah. works, right? The independence. That one customer is just as important as the next customer, and it's yeah, you know, that's what you're trying to sell. I think a lot of the time is is that feeling. I mean, we all. It's not exactly like that. That's just, you know, we'd be lying if we said every shop owner out there treats every customer exactly the same, right? We all have our favorites, but you, you're at least treating them better, I think, sometimes than some of those people at the dealer that there's a stack of work orders and you know you're, that stack is just immediately labeled time wasters and we put that to the bottom. That's the two o'clock and on stuff that we get to at the end of the day to see because it's, you know. Uh, that drove me right that drove me nuts like it was 8 a.m at the dealer was always super stressful because we we always (laughs) had probably 50 appointments every eight at eight o'clock every day that we were ever 50 appointments you know and that was a big thing in the dealer world and i would say shops that were less well run when i was growing up is schedule all the waiters in the morning Then everybody that works for you dreads coming in in the morning because you know the morning's going to be a mess. In the last shop that I worked at in uh, New York, I actually sat the owner down, one of the best guys that I ever worked for. He was the guy that, uh, well, I'll go into this part of it afterwards, but I had a tool allowance from that I started using for training, and that was what allowed me to get into training. But he would schedule waiter sometimes in the morning and he was an older gentleman that had retired and he opened the shop so that his son could eventually take it over his son was a dealer tech and he wanted to get his son out of the dealer 
But when he would schedule waiters in the morning, it would frazzle him. Oh, yeah. So every morning he would come in and he was frazzled and I would just stand at my toolbox. Well, me standing at my toolbox then frazzled him because he was concerned that I was upset with him waiting. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, it's fine. Take your time. Well, what I ended up starting to do is I sat him down one day and I said, Tim, I'm going to come in 20 minutes later because if I don't stand at my toolbox, then it's going to help you to not feel stressed. So yeah. I would like purposely come in later on and that helped him. And then eventually I was like, just stop scheduling waiters. It frazzles you. You don't need to be frazzled in the morning. Just tell them to drop it off. There's no reason. So he stopped scheduling waiters or we'd like spread them out through the day. So he had time and stuff and that helped him. It helped him and it helped everybody so that everybody came in in the morning they were kind of relaxed you grabbed a couple cars and they weren't waiters and you had the first like hour to just kind of work on stuff maybe you were doing inspections on cars or whatever but we got rid of the waiters in the morning and that helped and it also helped him yeah i we had we had two trends that happened at the big dealer that i was at that would drive you crazy we had two guys that would show up habitually late half an hour every day because the first if you went, so we were on automated dispatch, which had codes, right? Labor dispatch codes, which again was another loophole that they would, you know, if you put down, I forget what it was, zero one or something, which was just general. If you put that in the top line, it would flag to anybody in the shop. Didn't matter what. So it was just like you put zero one and then it could be like a transmission complaint. Anybody would pick it up. And then you're like, what the heck? Why am I picking up this transmission fault? Oh, yeah, because somebody started a one at the top, right? And put it as priority. Waiter trumped everything. So if you just put a waiter down and we'd go out to the advisor and I'd be like, where's this customer? I need to road test this. Like, I'm not hearing it. Oh, well, they're wa- they're at home. Well, they're supposed to be waiting. Yeah, they're waiting at home. Okay. <laughs> we'll throw that back in the pile, right? And then, so the, and then the text, it got to be so bad where we had a handful of texts that would show up 30 minutes late because then... The real crap work was already dispatched and that boy, that like that, that would drive you nuts too. Right. Because it's, you're there following the rules, doing what you're supposed to. And you're seeing two guys kind of walk in. It's like, you know, they're not doing the first set, 10 sets of tires right in the morning. They're going to pull that first timing belt ticket or whatever, like tune up or whatever. And you're like, Jesus Christ, like I'm, I'm on my second set of tires here by 845 and, you know, he's rolling into a tune-up job. Like it's, you know, it was that kind of stuff. So that's where I saw a lot of the, the, I'm not a team player. I'm out for myself attitude, right? was because, and I get it. I get it because you could solve, they've heard me all say it before, you could solve the most complex problem on Monday. It didn't matter. So it could have been passed around the shop, like, you know, four other techs had a kick at it. You get it. You solve it. Tuesday morning, here's a tired job at eight o'clock in the morning. First thing. It's just like makes you want to pull your hair out. You know, like what, <laughs> what do I have to do here? It's not that I'm not too good for tires, but I was always the type where it's like, this is what I like to do. You have some guys that struggle with it, but they're really good at this. I don't mind if you feed me it. I don't care if it's warranty or retail. Just. I want to see it done right. Give it to me. And, you know, in in a perfect world, that works really well when they do that. But it's a scheduling nightmare, right? Because if you get yeah. to one and it's, well, you know what it's like, right? You were talking about you book your program in the morning so you can make enough money for gas, at least for the rest of the day. And then you yep. go and talk your problem cars in the afternoon. I very much was like, I wanted, 
you know, three work orders in the morning diagnostics and then that helped set me up okay so this one's going to need you know a starter this one needs a transmission control module this one i'm going to need more diag time because i've got to you know open up the harness and find where the brake is right to run an overlay whatever give me a couple evap ones in the meantime you know while we're waiting on them and i'll bang at it real quick like you know misfire give me some of that give me like updates but i didn't want to walk in at eight o'clock and, and do four tires and then see the how the dispatch goes go over to that guy that who's really like not strong at diag and he pulled the ticket and he struggled with it make a wrong call the car comes back you know the next day two days later next week and then it gets rolled to me you know what i mean that drove me crazy we had i worked with some guys that's like you saw them do something on Thursday and you were working Saturday. You reconsidered working Saturday because you knew that car's coming back. You know, it's, yep. it's going to need about, you know, a hundred K kilometers. It's going to rerun the monitor. It's going to flag the light again and it's going to be back in and you're working this Saturday and guess who gets it? You like, yep. That, that. And then the customer's upset and you're dealing with an upset customer who showed up. My light's back on. I want to wait and I'm mad. Yeah. And it's Saturday, <laughs> right? Like Saturday was already, you know, I hated work. I mean, I didn't hate working them, but I, I worked a lot of them, but it wasn't my favorite thing to do, but I worked them because, you know, I needed to make the hours, but it was just, it would start to drive me nuts. Cause it's like, you know, that, you know, that, that, EVAP wasn't diagnosed properly. So he's going to clear it. It'll come back in on Friday, right? It's, oh, look, it's not the purge solenoid. Shucks. You know, <laughs> crap. Now what do we do? Oh, it's, it's a broken wire and harness. Don't worry, Jeff will find that. That's, yeah. You know, it was, it was tough. It was, I learned a lot, but I mean, I don't recommend it to, to, to people starting out. I can't, I can't do it in good faith. Say, yes, go sign up. No matter what the, you know, the always, like you were talking about your T10 program and all that kind of stuff. I wish when they, when they draft up those programs for the kids that are coming out, that somebody that was a senior tech somewhere sits them down and say, okay, so this could happen when you start in this shop, there could be some, you know, some, politics going on this is how you navigate it because it's one thing to know how the product is built and how it works but i think we need to be and this is part of the reason i want to do these kind of podcasts is for young people listening this is the reality that when you go out into the workforce that isn't the technical side of it it's how do you survive that how do you navigate it right how do you come into a dealership and thrive without drawing that big bullseye on your back yep Oh, yeah. And you just brought up something, too, that I think is important. You were talking about working Saturdays. Mm -hmm. Dealership life, that was a pretty common thing. Dealership was at least open Saturdays. Sometimes they were even open Sundays. And chain stores around here, uh, I'm going to pick on Firestone because Firestone's open Saturday and I think Sundays. But at any rate, open weekends and the guys all work long hours. And not only did I dislike doing that when I had to. I used to work six days a week pretty commonly. Now that I, I guess I'm at the level that I am doing what I do, I could not do the six days a week. My brain would be way too fried. So I look at it and I get asked all the time, Tanner, how do you do what you do? How did you get to this level? And I, a big part of it is I stopped working weekends. I stopped working 12 hours a day. And there's all those guys that, oh, we should work more and stuff. And I used to be that person. 
now I realized that my brain was so fried from doing that. And like, I also used to be just up until, I don't know, two years ago, I used to be real bad about stay up real late till, well, uh, IATN chat. Mm-hmm. I think you'll remember those days of staying up real late. I was like 18 years old hanging out in IATN chat till 2 a.m. and stuff. And I realized that if I didn't get seven hours of sleep, my brain was fried yeah. and to diagnose vehicles that are just, you know, everybody's given up on. And then mm-hmm. they come to me and I get this, like, I guess like praise of, Oh, you figured it out. Well, some of the reason I figured it out is because I don't work Saturdays. I work five days a week. I try to work four days a week. If I can, I try to sleep minimum seven hours a night. Like I try to take time off and people really don't consider the mental side of like what your brain has to go through. And there's days that I get home tonight will be one of those days from thinking through that forerunner. There's nights that I get home that like physically wise. So I'm a cyclist too. And I run a little bit. I try to avoid running, but I ride my bike 25 to 50 miles pretty regularly. Uh And I get home and I'm like, I could get on my bike and ride. But my brain is so fried that I will probably pull out in front of a car. (laughs) I'm just Mm -hmm. mentally tired. So people don't think about, and the dealerships don't think about, and the chain stores don't think about, like, if you want to take on diagnostic stuff and you want somebody to succeed, working six days a week, 10 hours a day is not going to work. That person may be able to do it for a short amount of time and maybe they can do it for 20 years, but that person's mental health after 20 years is going to be terrible. Like there's a lot of that stuff that isn't thought through. Yeah. And it, and it comes with, with set, well, not setbacks, but it comes with a cost, right? Like it's, I've had, we've all had them, those cars that like keep you up at night, you know, that, that drive you crazy that you, I was just talking you know, I've talked with Brenda Dills. I was talking lot, like all these people. And it's like those cars you come in and, and it's still sitting in your bay, you know, from the day before and the day before or it's sitting in the corner of the parking lot. And it's you've ordered a part, but you're not 100 percent confident. So it's like it's out of your mind. It's in there, but it's not really because you see it every time you go and get another car and you bring it in. It's sitting there that people have no if you haven't been in the business. And I mean, like in it, not just like, oh, I worked at a, I was a service advisor. If you don't know what those cars do to you when you're thinking about, man, was I right? Was I wrong? Is it going to fix it? You know, that Mrs. Smith's intermittent no start that we never really narrowed it down. Like those things keep you awake at night, right? So yep. this, this idea that, you know, everything is, equal hours everything is about time that's not because that kind of work plays on you at a different level you know it's just one thing to go okay i gotta stress about making hours cool i appreciate that but i have to stress about making hours and i have to stress about the complex level of repairing the automobile that's a different toll right it takes a different toll on a person it's just like you said that's why when i came when i moved back home and I started fishing again, my mental health just like skyrocketed into a much better level because that's the one activity in my life that I can go out there. And I, it seems like people are like, it's such a basic thing. You're friggin' right. It is. It's such a, big <laughs> I'm trying to catch little green fish, but it's the one thing in life that I do. It's not my phone. It's not watching YouTube. Cause all that is car stuff. 
when I'm out on the boat, I don't even think about the shop, right? I don't even think about a car. I am so uber focused on that little green fish and what I'm doing to catch it. And, you know, all the different variables come to that. It's the only thing. So wintertime for me, I get really into into the industry, right? I, I get my my passion. I get worked up, but as soon as well, we got about a month now, and uh, those little fish are going to start to come in season, and I'm going to be a completely different person, right? I'm going to be yeah. much more relaxed, upbeat, happy, devil may care type of type of person because I'm getting my stress relief out. I'm getting my, you know, I'm being able to unplug. And I think that that we have to, at some point in this industry, start to teach our young people how to do that too. Cause with this tech that's coming, if we don't teach them how to do that, we're going to have even worse burnout. Like we'll, we'll yep. achieve getting them in, but it'll just meat grinder them up. Like there'll be no, exactly. no way around it. Cause it's when you're thinking about, the next level that's coming in, right? Whew. You know, it's a lot. It's, yeah, it's going to be even worse than anything I've ever seen, you know? Yeah. Like somebody's I just driving think, car. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There'll, there'll have to be a lot of changes to, uh, A, the way, you know, shops are run, the way vacation is taken you know, what the atmosphere is in the shop. And like you were saying, I agree completely too, that I think the OEs are uh, eventually going to come in and start, you know, forcing the dealers or take away the franchises. Uh, I think Cadillac was one of the ones that gave a bunch of their dealers the option to take a buyout and walk away. So most of the OEs, so the ones that I've uh, worked with, with some of their like recruiting departments and stuff, most of them are pretty good of like understanding what people want and like trying to reach out to uh, companies like Wrenchway and stuff that are more involved in saying, okay, you've been around for a while, your presence is with technicians, what do the technicians want? Most of the OEs are pretty good about that. So I think we'll see a you know positive change there. My concern is when the cars are outside of warranty, how do they handle or do they just say, nope, we only work on cars, you know, inside of warranty after that, and then they just get kicked. I'm not sure how that'll go yet, uh, but hopefully, you know, it'll be for the positive going forward and yeah. we'll start to kind of work through some of those things and understanding that not only do we have to do better as far as training them, so like do the work, but we also have to do better for work environment and making sure that they're taken care of when they came in, they're trained well, they understand, well, hopefully the politics of it will kind of start to go away. But until then, that they understand the politics of it. How do you work through it? Um, you know, how do you set up apprenticeship programs and stuff like yeah. that? North Carolina has been very forward thinking and setting up apprenticeship stuff. And you have uh, yeah. Red Seal. Now, yeah. explain, I guess, the Red Seal thing quick. Cause so the Red- I've heard there's good and bad to it, but it, I guess, yeah. forces apprenticeship kind of. It, it exactly it forces an apprenticeship if you want to legally <laughs> air quotes legally fix cars you're supposed to be red seal certified 310s is the designation i have it's essentially automotive service technician 310s i don't know what the code number means it's not all that important 310s is light duty 310T is trucks. So, and I say trucks, I mean like a Ford F550 and bigger, you know, an 18 wheeler, that kind of stuff. Now, it used to be years ago, 
you just became a Red Seal mechanic and you got both. You could work on an 18-wheeler to a Ford Pinto. It didn't matter. You could work on it all. You could sign the safety on it. That's the big thing here is that you can go into a shop and work, or at least before you could, could, but you couldn't sign a car as being safe to sell for a resale for a used car if you weren't what we call certified, licensed, red seal, whatever you want to call it. It's had different names. They used to call it Class A mechanic. Everybody say, oh, you're Class A mechanic. That was that was what you, oh, I'm a Class A. It means that essentially you take on an apprentice and they log, uh, I think it's 10,000 hours on the job through different pro. So they're given a trade standards book. And in the trade standard books, it'd be like your AC air conditioning fundamentals, your transmission fundamentals, your gear train fundamentals, your electrical fundamentals, your engine fundamentals, all of that. And it'll be, each one is broken down into separate categories so that you understand, okay, you understand a planetary gear set. Your mentor signs it off. Yes, he does. He has proven or she has proven that they understand. To the next thing, do they understand a hydraulic flow through? And on and on and on until you have this book with like 500 sections in it, say, all signed off saying, yes, you understand. And then you go and you write. So at the end of 10,000 hours, it takes about on the job three years within those three years you do i think it's four thousand hours or eight thousand hours of classroom it works out to a lot about four months every year you go and you do either like when i went i would go and i would do so two months january february yeah january february halfway through march about you know 10 weeks say where you're in a classroom taking instruction at normally college from a trade certified instructor normally they're older retired mechanics and they teach you just like how you would teach right this is ohm's law this is uh you know four strokes of an engine that kind of stuff and you sit and then next year you come back and you do it again and you do your third level after you do that and you pass all of those tests and all of those classroom environments and there's labs right so you then you go out into the shop and you you know they rig up they they bug a car right go find the open wire once they've done all that then you you what to do you write your final t- exam and you pass your final exam you're now licensed as a automotive technician then you can essentially you go out in the industry you get paid more and you can, for all intents and purposes, the difference is you can sign a safety that says this car is safe to be sold. This car is safe. That's what it is. Quebec up here doesn't recognize it. Every other province does. The idea of getting a red seal was that that meant that you scored a certain level on the test. And that meant that that license could go to any other province in the country other than Quebec. And you'd be recognized as licensed. You could immediately go in, look at a car, deem that it was safe and the car would be certified to go on the road for sale. That's how it is. It is. So when I hear people go, Oh, well, that's what, that's what every state, you know, in the union needs and it's going to fix all the problems. It doesn't though, because like 
it's only as good, like you talked about, as the mentoring that you're putting onto that young apprentice, right? The, the way you're teaching them, the skills that you give them, the, the methods that they don't shotgun the part, actually learn how to diagnose it. If you're in a shop where somebody's not teaching them that, yes, it's just, okay, he signed off the book that says he understands it. He goes and takes a test. He gets, you know, it's multiple choice questions. You know, it's normally B or D. He picked B and D enough. He passed, right? He goes out there and he works in the workforce. It's cool. He gets a job. He's paid. But it's like me, right? My book is signed off saying I understand automatic transmissions, right? But I have not taken an automatic transmission apart and put it back together since I did it in trade school. And I'll tell you, right. when I did it in trade school, half the parts are missing because it's been a <laughs> hundred times, right? So. Yep. Can I, would I tell you that I'm competent in transmissions? No, not at all. Not like the guy that has only ever worked in a transmission shop. So the loopholes or the, the holes in the system, you may have a guy that has apprenticed at a transmission shop. He is phenomenal at transmissions, right? Really good. But he might come into, he might sit down for the test and there's 40 air conditioning questions on it. He may have never hooked up a gate, set of gates to a car in a transmission shop, right? Other than maybe right. to evacuate it to work on if it removes removing something to access transmission. No idea about necessarily the the function and the diagnostic process of that system, right? But so this yep. is the holes that we always said was was in the apprenticeship system in Canada was because depending on your work experience had a real big factor into how well you were prepared for the industry, which is not, that's not just exclusive up here. That's, we can say that about any shop in the, in the country, right? And the, on the continent, for that matter, you're only going to be as good as what you're taught on the shop floor, period. If you have good people teaching you, you're going to do well. If you, if you choose to take it in, if you're being trained by questionable people, questionable <laughs> morals and ethics, you, you've got an obstacle in front of you, right? So it is not a solution. I want to say that it is a it is a good process up here, and it is a good place to start. And I, I brought it up in the group a couple weeks ago, and it didn't go over well. Because up here, it's mandated by the government. The government, the provincial government designed it. They implicate it. They police it. They I, I have to register every three years i have to pay x amount of dollars to keep my certification valid there is no retesting that's the cool part there is no retesting so somebody that we used to joke they wrote their test in 1976 in 2006 they could still be licensed right right there was never an efi question on their test when they wrote it in 76 <laughs> but they're still a licensed tech they're still earning the top tier pay in a dealership, for example, right? Senior tech makes X amount. Apprentice makes this amount. They might not be. Their skill set may be really far behind, right? There's right. a lot of guys that maybe if they were to sit down and write the test 30 years later, they wouldn't pass it, you know? So recertification is just as important as certification, 100%. I think that this industry, and this is this is going to be the caveat that's going to get a lot of people, will be the obstacle, is because I think if we took so many people in our workforce and said, 
cool. You passed. It's like ASC, that, that argument. Okay. Let's recertify. Let's make sure that you're still, you know, understanding you're still keeping up to date with the, the tech. What do you do with that person? If they write that test tanner and they fail, right? Do you bump them and pay? Like, did you determine? Yeah. Like it's, it's a slippery slope. I, I, I took a long time before I wrote the test because I hate taking tests. And um, when I did write it, I scored 89%. Really a pretty high mark. Now, there's guys that's right. higher, but I mean, I did better than I, w- I thought. But I was the last one in the classroom to finish writing the test. Like I sat there and some kids wrote it in an hour and it was, I think it was 500 questions. Right. And like I, there was a kid, he wrote it in an hour and a half. I don't know what he got. I never saw him again. He wasn't like, he wasn't a classmate of mine. It's like we show up at a building, you know, we go up to room, whatever we sit down. You could be sitting next to somebody that's writing a trade exam for HVAC, right? They're not techs. They're just people writing trade exams that day. But I knew he was an automotive tech because of how he was dressed. And he wrote it and he walked out in an hour and 20 minutes. I never saw him again. I'd never seen him before. I don't know if he passed or not. I was the last right. automotive tech to finish writing that day. And I I flipped that down and I'm like, oh, I think I got it, but it would have been just barely. Because it's not, 50 isn't a pass. Right. 70 is a pass. Right. So Now, is there continued education in your recertification? No. Okay. There is no recertification. I'm good for yeah. life, dude. <laughs> So see, so that's what I would like to see uh, here with like apprenticeship programs and stuff is I would love to see them force and say, so like with doctors and mm-hmm. nurses, there's no continued certification. There's continued education hours each year. Uh, it drives me nuts, I guess, for like ATMC accreditation for schools that the instructor, it's like, oh yeah, 15 hours and there's no real requirement of like who the training's from. Mm-hmm. It needs to be higher. Now, what that number has to be, my opinion, is going to be a lot different than other people's opinions. But if you take enough training like this, one of the arguments is, well, how do we make sure the training is good? Well, if they take enough of it, it doesn't matter if it I don't want to say it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, but enough hours of training, there's going to be good training in it. Like I talk about, I take hundreds of hours of training a year. Do some of the classes that I sit in suck? Yeah, some of them that I you know watch and I'm like, mm, this isn't great information. But there might be one little thing that the person says and I'm like, huh, I didn't know that before. And now all of a sudden I got one thing out of a class that was kind of mediocre. Well, if you take hundreds of hours of it and you get one mediocre thing out of Every each month. class, then all of a sudden you have a lot of knowledge. So I would like to see that part of it. And that was kind of, I guess I wondered that with Red Seal, if there was anything like that. So that's good to know there's not. No. And like, I don't know if we're ever going to see it get revamped up here. I really don't because it was, I mean, it's been around a long time. Like it's probably been a recognized way of doing it up here for, I bet you 50 years. Like uh, we talk all the time, ASE is nothing up here. It's not even recognized. There's one Canadian tire. The biggest chain store has some kind of, you know, they'll advertise in their waiting room area that like they have ASE certified mechanic, but the people that are sitting there have no idea what that means. 
you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's just, it's not because it's not like other shops where you might see it on somebody's sleeve and you go, okay, I, I recognize that symbol. There's no recognition up here really of the symbol. So for people, it doesn't really, it's just another logo on a shirt. Right. And whereas everybody for years, you used to walk into any shop and they used to take your certification, your, I have it hanging on the wall right in front of me with your name, your, your date of when it was issued to you, your red seal. And that was, they, they would hang in the waiting rooms of, of shops and it would show them that, oh, okay, we've got 20 class A cert, red seal certified techs in here. That was what, so that's everybody used to say, oh, your dad's a mechanic. Is he class A certified? You know, that kind of stuff. It was what we in Canada up here are, have been programmed to look for. You know, Class A and Class A is not even it anymore. They don't even refer to it. But it's like you got a red seal. Yeah, I got a red seal. It's it needs to it needs to be revamped because you will work with a guy, for instance, that like I said, he wrote it in 1978, and he's yep. licensed, right? And he's and this is not running him down, but I mean, if say since 1988, he's been predominantly a you know, alignment and front end type tech. That's I just say front end guy. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not picking on front end guys. I'm not saying they're dumb. That's to please. It's people are going to listen to this goal. He's got real <laughs> hate on. No, but it's, you know what I mean? Like the technology kind of stays the same, right? Yep. It's, it's angles and, and work practice, work practices. The technology that's going on from a set of points to a carburetor, to an EFI, to port fuel, to EV, huge difference. Yeah. Right? But the guy that's maybe is class A, the next day he could be expected to go and work on an EV. Well, you're a class A, you're a class A tech up here, right? You're class A. He might not even be good on EFI, right? Yeah. Or or electrical <laughs> diagnostics. And we're gonna give him an EV. That happens, Tanner. That happens in shops up here. It's just right. the way so it's more important certification. Like AAC, you know, we hear that, well, that just means somebody passed the test. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, it means more than that. Because if they pass the test, it means that they had the initiative to take the test and they have some kind of understanding. Yes, I understand maybe they overcomplicate it when they get under the hood of a car and, they and you know, it just doesn't fire for them. But they understand something that's going on. If I wrote my test when it was carburetors. And I never touched a fuel system, an injection system. Do you mean to tell me I'm going to be able to sit down and talk to him about the difference between a wide band and a conventional auction sensor? No, not, he's not going to have a clue, right? Yeah. But he might make the same money an hour as somebody your age that's only really been exposed in the industry to that newer type of technology, right? So up here, we see without recertification, we do see a lot of guys aging out that, man, they started to let their skills slip, you know? And it, it sometimes they can be an obstacle for getting young people into the shops. Unfortunately, as much as that sucks, that's the reality. I've worked with a lot of guys older that weren't they weren't strong at that kind of work they were good techs but they weren't strong at diag they didn't have that process well 
you may watch them get dispatched some work that they have no business touching. And you're sitting yeah. over there going, I can't believe he's going down that road that he's going down. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to enjoy the show here. And like, and, and then maybe they hand it to you and you fix it. And you're paid $6 less an hour because that person has 25 years of experience in the industry. You've got five. Why would I pay you? Who's worth more? Right yeah. Now? Who's more valuable right now? <laughs> right. Yeah. This is exactly. the, this is the argument that nobody really in the industry wants to sit down and, and talk Turkey about and be flat up, Frank honest about. And I see both sides of the argument. It's a tough one, but I mean, really who is worth more to you right now? Like right. Just exactly. solve that car, you know, and this is this is the problem, I think, is they're going to be the always the obstacle of certification and recertification with the industry is that how do we who is the one that decides what is competency? What is qualified? Who is it? Right. Like, is it somebody like uh, do they have to be a super whiz technical trainer that can decide? So who is the person that's going to be deciding what is the level that is acceptable? Who do we get? Do we get a guy that's, do we take a John Thornton? Do we take a Brandon Steckler, somebody of that technical expertise and say, this is, and they write the whole list of what's to be certified, you know, and then you could have your detractors that say, okay, well, those guys are really great at, you know, the electrical and the drivability. How do we determine who's going to be the one that's certified for front end brakes, suspension, air conditioning? Like who does it all? You know, yeah. This is this is the problem. Up here, we just had our manual rewritten a few years ago because our manual up here as to what is classified as certified is tied very much into the same manual as to what is possible for a car to be safety and what's not. It's there's not a whole lot of gray anymore. They let it right down to, you know, this has to work. This has to work. You can't have cracks in the glass. You can't have, you know, brake measurements have to be this tire tread depths have to be that, you know, brake lines can be rusted as long as they're intact. They pass that kind of stuff. Right. Right. So how do we ever get everybody in this industry on a unified front to say, I all agree we all agree that this is what should be the level. I don't think we can. It's like saying we have to write a code book, right? We hear other trades talk, well, the code book is this, the code book is that. We don't have that here. You know, as much as we yeah. think we do with the with the Red Seal or ASC or whatever, we don't have a code book for this industry. We need one. Right. Yeah. Who's going to write it? Yeah. And that's why I guess my argument is always like the training side of it. So I think everybody's always going to disagree. And I think that's why the medical field, you know, went that way as they're like, same thing. How do we, who writes it? How do they decide? So instead they go, yeah, you take a certification when you get out, it's on a bell curve and, you know, X amount of people pass, X amount of people fail. And then after that, we just expect you to do continue education credit and hopefully you take enough continuing education that some of it's good, some of it's bad and you get something out of it. And then there's no trying to like write 
I guess what it should be or how you do certification. And, and then the other thing that that does is forces people who, like you were saying, who had certified back when EFI wasn't a thing. Now all of a sudden they're forced to keep taking classes. Yeah. And so that's my thing, I guess, is I hope to see it go that way someday. I don't know if it will. I know that that's, if I ever get the chance to, uh, I guess, do some leaning on, the u.s and the u.s is okay we got to do something because of autonomous driving or something and i can say yeah that's fine get people trained and you know work itself out but whether they go that way or not we'll have to see well it's like lucas always talks about the barrier of entry right but i mean we don't really know what that's going to be you know right it's it's a term that's getting tossed around a lot but i don't think anybody has come down yet and said this is definitely going to be it you know is is because they used to say that it was going to be like hybrids were going to be the 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 barrier of entry, and I know lots of shops that service hybrids that you know don't they service the car, but they don't necessarily do the hybrid repairs, right? So yep. they're going to be like, well, and because they talked about it at ASTE, there's a lot of repairs you can do on an EV and so on and so forth. You're not in any danger at all. Right, you're not yeah. like it's perfectly safe. There's, you know, you got to watch the air conditioning system on some because it's whatever. But I mean, you can service a lot of that car without any kind of warning or threat to yourself. Yep. Like, it it didn't stop people from. Oh, that's a Prius. No, I can't do that brake job. Like, I mean, right, exactly. You know, what do you see? So, we were talking earlier about mentorship and stuff, but. Of all that, when you're going into the shops, is that the biggest you think thing that's lacking right now in the industry is mentorship? Or do you think it's where do you see like when you see tech struggle and you say, okay, they need more training? Do they need more training because they're not taking the initiative on their own or it's a culture thing? I think a little bit of both. So I think we've had, I think it's very hard for shops to find training, I guess, in the aspect of, so I'm very involved. You're very involved with Facebook and we see Mm -hmm. it. The people who don't have Facebook, a lot of my shops, they go to me all the time. Hey, you know, you're going to this training this month. You're going to this training. How did you find out about that? And I'm like, ah, it's posted on Facebook or it's posted on diagnostic network, or it used to be posted on IETN, but if they're not involved and like now when I'm like, oh, it was posted on diagnostic network, they're like, What's that? And, you know, they, they weren't involved with ITN. And so because of that, they don't know about the training. So they haven't gotten the training. So then the technicians that are working for them also aren't getting the training. Mm -hmm. The shop is, I don't want to call it subpar, but we'll call it subpar as far as training goes. And so now we're like kind of the blind leading the blind in the colleges, in my personal opinion, the idea of having like a two-year school for automotive now is kind of should be a thing of the past like trying to teach brakes suspension steering automatic transmissions manual and everything with electronics in two years is like virtually impossible yeah so i think we really should be doing like the mechanical side of it in two years and then if they want to 
really dive into all the systems. I mean, I think about now with just adding ADOS, like that's a completely different thing that now has to be added into the curriculum in the same amount of time. Yep. <laughs> like you could take months to go over how radar works and how cameras work and stuff at two hours a day. Like it's literally going to take you months to teach that to your college students. So you've added something into the curriculum. Now they're going to get less and less. So at any rate, the college programs, I just don't think are getting the students career ready. And they're like, oh, well, they'll learn when they get to the shop. Well, not if the shop also is not trained. And so the shops don't know about the training, which then leads to them not being trained, the technicians not being trained. Uh, we don't have any mentorship programs aside from like Toyota T10 and GM ASAP and mm-hmm. Ford. But if they kick them to the dealer, like I talked about before, they're probably not getting mentored. Yeah. The states have not done a great job here. Uh, North Carolina has a good apprenticeship program. They're one of the like very few that does. Most of them do not. Uh, New York didn't have any type of apprenticeship program when I was up there. We had inspections, but the inspection certification thing was honestly kind of a crock truthfully yeah like it just wasn't you went in there for like i don't know i think it was like an hour or two hour class or something um but so like i don't know there just is a lot of problems there i guess thinking through of getting people more involved so i think it's a multiple you know part problem there up here what we had when i was going through high school and i think it's still a thing is we had what we call co-op which was like while you were still in high school Normally, like your, so it would be my third and fourth year of high school. You could go and work like three days a week at a, so it didn't necessarily have to be shop, but it would be, oh, you want to be, you want to be culinary. You want to do a chef. You're going to go work in, say, somebody would take you on in, as, in a restaurant or a catering business or something like that. If you wanted to work in a shop, they'd say, okay, you're going to come in three days a week, say from 10 in the morning until two in the afternoon. You're going to just shadow the mechanics, going to follow them around. Uh, I think that because as we've taken more and more auto shop out of schools, high school, secondary, we need to get, if we want people back in, we as an industry need to be approaching the high schools and saying, hey, if you have, you know, a student that is interested in this, can we figure out some way that you get them credits? And they come and work in the shop and get an exposure to it. Because I think you and I would agree, I'd rather get them before they've graduated, get them exposed to it. If they turn around and go, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Now I can go back to school and choose a different career, right? I hate to see the kids come all the way through high school, take a two-year college program. Then they get on the shop floor in a dealership. The culture kills their enthusiasm for it and they go say you know f this i'm picking a completely different trade that happens way too much right i'd rather get them when they're and it's tough like when they're 14 years old 15 years old they can't even really drive the car right so i mean like how do you but i want them to see okay this is how this guy is going to do five alignments today. This guy's going to do 10 sets of tires today. This guy's got a head off of that, you know, Cadillac over there. Go see those steps involved in that kind of job, right? Go, go watch that guy hook a scan tool up and see the process that he has to go through in Diag. Look at him doing an ADAS calibration. When you start to expose them to that kind of level 
they don't just think it's we're putting tires and brakes on all day long or we're changing oil. They realize the level of what's going on. Then I think we can get some of the younger people really fired up and want to be in this industry. But I think we have to be going to the high schools and saying, we want your kids now, right? Give them yeah. credits. Turn around, we'll pay them a little bit of money, you know, like up here, that's the other thing. And it really, really irritates me. When you hire an apprentice on in a shop up here, their pay is subletted from the government. So you get a big old check from the government for employing them. So what a lot of the dealers do is you may hire a kid. And he only wants to change oil. He has no business. He don't want to be a mechanic. He just doesn't want to stand there and sell coffee at Tim Hortons. So he wants to change oil in the car. So that's cool. They take those kids and sign them up immediately as an apprentice because the government kicks in 60% of their wages, right? They have no intention of ever transitioning past the Lubrac. They have no intentions of seeing them develop into, you know, a tech, but man, I got that 60% sublet. That's, you know, I'm essentially now what was a loss leader oil change. Hey, the margin's pretty good yeah. on it now, right? When 60% of their wages for the day is paid for by the government. Right. So that's when I see the apprenticeship programs and the incentivized stuff from the government. That's something I don't want to see keep happening, right? It's yeah. like, okay, yes, we're going to help you with their wages, but in turn, you've got to be actually doing the right right by them you have to be pushing them into where we need them to be yeah we're, we're failing miserably at that up here i feel anyway it's it's just a you know let's take well that's how we can still do an oil change for 34.95 because i've got a whole bunch of quick loop kids that minimum <laughs> wage is 16 dollars. six percent of that's paid by the government bang 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 done you know it's not as terrible as it was those right. kids never get a chance to shadow a lot of techs unless they're like shirking their duties as a, as a quick loop person to actually go and seem interested. And then the foreman or the manager says, oh, okay, we're actually going to take the next step with them. It's not fair. There should be a much more laid out program of when they come in. This is going to be your basic task. And I don't mean pushing a broom around or taking the garbage out, right? I mean, like, this is what you need to learn. That's the best part of our apprenticeship program is up here is it's laid out as you're what we call common core. You're going to go there and you're going to learn pretty much how not to drop the car on yourself. You're going to learn how not to get hurt. You're going to learn how, you know, righty tighty, lefty loosey. You're going to learn that, you know, you don't put a metric bolt in a standard hole. All stuff that seems very basic. You're going to learn that, right? Because yep. we need you to learn that. And then the next year is, this is what, by the time your 10 weeks is done, we want you to have an understanding of this concept, right? And Ohm's law and four strokes of an engine and like so on and so forth. And it gets pretty laid out. I think we need that in this industry because if we don't have it, there's so much, it's the wild, wild west from what you might learn in one shop what you might learn in another i mean it already is still like that but at least if if everybody in the industry kind of had a set path to go down we get some kind of standardization some kind of cohesiveness and you could say okay so instead of this alphabet tech stuff oh he's an a tech or b tech or c tech up here like the first time brian pollock says to me you know trying to hire i'm like you're trying to hire what 
BTEC? What the heck is a BTEC? Like, we don't use that up here. It's not, it's not known, right? It's just, right. It, we don't. So, and, and you still see all the time guys arguing in the groups and whatnot going, well, that's not really an ATEX job or that's not really a BTEC or like a CTEC. It's, it's all too confusing, right? It's yeah, all too confusing. Agreed. Like, we just, 100%. We need to, it's like, okay, so can you do an alignment? Okay, cool. All right. Alignments are good. Okay. Can you, oh, you got a broken bolt off in an engine. Can you go get a welder and, you know, weld a nut to that and take it back out? No. Okay. That's all right, too. That doesn't mean that you're a terrible mechanic. You might work in some place. Hell, I welded more in the last two years than I ever did in the 20 some years before my career. Right. Yeah. In the dealership, we didn't weld. We didn't even have a working welder. Yeah. <laughs> what would you need that for? Right. And then you get out of there and it's like you're dealing on rust and a lot of older stuff. And, you know, then you start to do a lot more exhaust manifold jobs. And it's like, oh, I got to remember how to make here. Right. And it's like, I'm, I'm now in a shop where I might have to stitch in, you know, a body panel. Right. To pass yeah. the safety. Like, that's, does that make, you know, and then you might take a, a hire a guy that's never done that, put him in a shop and you go, oh, he's not that qualified. He can't weld. <laughs> right and if he came from a shop that never did and didn't have it yeah yeah exactly it's it's i'm lucky in all the different experiences i've had but i mean i can remember going and working in a truck shop i hadn't welded and they're like oh what kind of mechanic are you you can't weld <laughs> um i'm gonna go over there and see that car that truck that nobody can get to start i'm gonna have it running in two hours that's what kind of mechanic i am right you're a great welder Maybe you should be a welder. I'm a technician. And see, that's like, you know, for, for years, I was that way when they'd be like, go over there and do that. I'm like, no, nah, I'm a tech. I'm not a welder, you know, as an example, yeah. right? Or or go put a floor pan in that, you know, patch that floor pan up. No, I'm not a body man. Like, I'm, I'm a technician. As this stuff becomes more specialized, I don't know what the solution is in that is whether it becomes like when I was talking with Brendan Dills, if you're going to be like, you're just going to work on one portion of the car, like you're going to yep. be an ADAS guy. But if the engine needs Diag, somebody else is going to be doing the, the, that. And I don't know if that's the solution or not, Tanner. I really don't, but I see it maybe going that way. Cause I just think there's too much now for that. We all need to know. Yeah, there's definitely going to be a division, and I think it's already happened now in mechanical, in diagnostic or electrical and ADOS stuff. And I see it as, you know, the it's very, very few and far between that technicians can do diagnostics and do mechanical stuff. Uh, you know, when I was doing mechanical stuff, I was a terrible flat rate tech. I never made money on flat rate. I couldn't turn a lot of hours because I was very picky on how I did stuff. Uh, being in the rust belt, when I did brakes, I wanted to sandblast yeah. the yeah. caliper areas and stuff so the brakes fit back in instead of grinding the edge of brake pads. And so stuff like that. And now I look at it and I go, I'm making money just doing the diagnostic side of it. And I see so many shops at this point where I walk in and I'm like, now some of them are, some of them will try to fix a car before they call me. Other ones have gotten to where they go. 
I don't have anybody here that can do this yeah. and we don't even want to do it. We're focused on tires, brakes, the place that I'm uh, building my house, the area I'm building my house in at the bottom of the, the hill, there's a shop and they've used me twice so far since I uh, went over there and introduced myself. Mm-hmm. When I introduced myself, the guy goes, I might use you once in a while, but I do tires and oil changes and once in a great, great while brakes because I don't really want to do brakes either. I just want to do oil changes and tires. And he's a tire shop, independent tire shop, but that's all he wants to do. He has no intentions to do anything outside of that. Oh, and he's a U-Haul shop too. Great shop, works out good because he's in a very small town Mm -hmm. and people need oil changes and that's all he cares to do. And he's probably late 50s, early 60s. So I think we'll see more of that. I think we'll see, you know, shops that a we're at a point where we're going to see guys that are of certain age and they're retiring or near retirement. So they're not going to want to reinvest. But I think you'll see even people I'm 33. I think you'll see people that are my age that go, I don't want to do the diagnostics or I only want to do the diagnostics mm-hmm. or I only want to do tires. I mean, we know at this point that some people will argue that tires aren't profitable, but like the tire stores that that's all they do have made it profitable. So it's profitable if that's all you're doing. So like, I do think that we'll see that. I think we'll see companies that start to just specialize in certain things and ADOS stuff with body shops right now. There's companies that that's all they're doing is ADOS calibrations and they're not even really programming anything. They show up, do the ADOS calibration. And if it needs programming, because there's body shops that I go to that I'm programming stuff and they're calling somebody else for ADOS Mm -hmm. stuff. So it's, you know, it it depends. I think you'll see more specialization for Mm -hmm. sure. I I think it's, it's, I think it has to go that way, right? And it's just how do we entice the young people? Because to me, if if I did nothing but ADAS all day, I'd be bored to tears. I would get out of it so fast; it would drive me. I'd be <laughs> even even programming. If I did nothing but programming all day, it would drive me crazy. Because it's yeah. just like you know, you you show up, you program. It's like in the dealer, we would do. I would do sometimes ten by noon. You know what I mean? Like yep. they release more and more. You just do. It's just second nature. If I had to drive around and do that on all the different makes and models. Yeah. I'd lose my mind. I don't know how they yeah. do it. I don't know how you do it. Like it's just, when I look <laughs> at the tooling and then the, the training that you have to do, it doesn't interest me. But at the same time, I see these guys and they, you know, I watch them on YouTube or whatever, like Paul Dan or any of those guys. And it's like the cars that come in, that or they go there and they try to solve that problem. Like it is just you what you don't know what you're walking into, right? Like you're walking into it and you left the hood and there's a whole bunch of different parts and the ECM's not bolted in and the wiring harness is laying across the top of the engine. And when you're in that point, you can't just close the hood and go, okay, I'm gonna give you a hundred and fifty bucks service call feedback. I don't want to touch this. Like you that does happen, right? But yeah, I mean if you do it too many times, you don't have, you don't have anything. You don't have a career. You don't have a job. So I'm real bad about, uh, I call it. So I call the problem hero syndrome and that's, Mm -hmm. you get to a car, you're like, I'm going to fix it. And a lot of dealerships are guilty of this app right here. We'll fix it. It's some crazy intermittent thing. If I get a phone call and somebody says it's intermittent, as soon as they're like, Hey, I got this intermittent. I go, hold on. How intermittent? Ah, uh, once you know, once a month, once every two weeks. 
I don't care what the car is. I don't care what the problem is. I'm not, I don't even care at that point. I'm not getting involved with it. Can't make any money on it. So I'm out. Uh, if I get to a shop and I open the hood and the car is an absolute disaster or I open the door and the car is like destroyed, mm-hmm. I walk back in the shop and I'm like, yeah, I'm not touching it. You shouldn't touch it. There's no money for either one of us to make on this. I'm out. Have a nice day. And I don't charge them if it's a good customer. Uh, if it's a bad customer, sometimes I'll charge them for going out there. Most of the time, I have enough cars for the day that I'm like, I'm just moving on. And like I say, I try to like base my business on that we're all partners you know all of my mm-hmm. shops and i want to help them and if i don't think there's money to be made on a car then i'm not doing it i don't want them to mess with it so many times i just walk away from stuff <laughs> now there's a lot of cars that i diagnose so it's not that i walk away from anything hard that's certainly not it mm-hmm. but if the car is like an absolute disaster like i had one i don't know two months ago and it was a Buick that wasn't really, well, what I consider not that old. It was like a 2011, but everybody had been into it. And like the more I start looking around, it had a five volt reference problem. And the ECT sensor plug was destroyed and everything was RTV'd in. Oh. So I'm like, okay, that's a problem. Then I went to the oil pressure sensor and all of the wires were bare at the oil pressure sensor and they had been all twisted up. And then I went to the camp sensor and they were all bare there. And I'm like, nah, we're done. Cause like there was so much stuff and it was every one of those sensors that was on that circuit. Yeah. The wires were bare on and the plugs were broken. And I went back in and, to the office and i'm like i'm not touching it you guys shouldn't touch it it was a used car that was at a shop i'm like that car is done like it's time for it to go away i explained it i took some pictures of it charged them for my time of looking at it and just explained to them like this is why it needs to go away mm-hmm. and they were happy and then the used car dealer that had it he was kind of obviously disappointed i'm sure but he also knew not to sell the car and not get in upside down and it just get rid yeah. of it yeah uh, and that's so it always makes me shake my head and sometimes I get really mad because like you'll see the guys and they'll put up a video on YouTube or whatever. Right. And and you're seeing all this stuff that's obvious and you can't, you know, like I sometimes forget that a lot of the time it is, it is a car lot that maybe own the car and that's why they're, but I look at it and go, if that's Mrs. Smith's car and Mrs. Smith's got three connector plugs that are shot somebody else that has looked at this car, I'm sure has given Mrs. Smith an estimate and Mrs. Smith has decided that's too much money and is looking for somebody that's doing, going to do it cheaper. That makes me want to pull my hair out. And I realize now that that's not normally the reality. Reality is, is like somebody just that doesn't touch the stuff at all has a nightmare car. They drop it in somebody's lap like yourself and you look at it and you go, yeah, this is going to need a whole lot. And then you decide, okay, we're going to fix it or not. I used to get so triggered because it was, I always used to jump to the conclusion that the customer is just cheap. And that's why these problem cars are not fixed. The reality is, is that yes, okay, maybe somebody cheap took it to the wrong person and that's how it started to get butchered and hacked. But a lot of it is now is people are, you know, people are looking at these cars and they're not they're not charging enough to start out. They're not saying X, Y, and Z need to be put back to like new status before we can even go down this road. Are you willing to commit to that? No. Okay. I'll collect my service fee. I'm on to the next one. If we can start to yeah. get this industry to do that, 
then we can start to see a lot of these problem cars become a little bit more profitable. But I think right now, until we get over the hurdle of some guys that, you know, still want to like roll the diag into the repair cost or whatever, <laughs> we're not, we're not going to get, you know what I mean, Tanner? We're not going to get them on yeah. with the idea that you have to restore it to, you know, a much closer to like OE or new process before we can we can start to do it because at the end of the day even if you've got one of those plugs isn't your problem the liability of thing and leaving it in there like that this doesn't help you at all right just because it's not the cause and your issue you're having right now we all know in this industry if i walk away and leave that there like that it could come back to bite me or bite that customer in the butt and then are we really advocating for the customer at that point? No, we're not. We're just trying to we're back to the same old thing of try, let's just cheap it, you know, as cheap as possible. Makes me want to yeah. just scream some days. Like Yeah. The the learning how to be profitable with diagnostics, learning what to say no to, what to say yes to, learning not to say, Oh yeah, I diagnosed it, you're gonna repair it, I'm gonna, you know, roll the fee into it. That's one of the things I guess that I have found that uh, me having this business here has greatly benefited all of my shops is my fee is high enough that they're like, I can't take it on the chin. Now, when I first started the business, most of them were taking it on the chin mm-hmm. and I slowly got more expensive and more expensive. And now they're like, man, that's a lot of money. I can't take it on the chin. And I go, okay. I've said from day one, don't take it on the chin, call the customer. I give them like a set price of where this is the maximum that I'm going to charge you. So they have something to tell the customer and then they go to the customer and the customer okays it. And I'm I'm fine with if they make markup with it because I am not talking to the customer. So whatever they want to do, they can do. But getting them to okay that amount of money up front with the customer for testing and then all of a sudden the customer pays it. And now, now I've had this business now five years. Now all of a sudden their customers are paying for testing and they never used to pay for testing. They used to roll the diagnostics right. into the repair. Now the customer is paying for testing because I forced them into doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the, like, I guess training, this is, sounds terrible. One of my customers is going to listen to this and hate me for it, but it is what it is. It's like training a dog. Like I, you know, backed them into doing it this way without them realizing that that's what I did. <laughs> so now they have to charge for testing and they stop rolling the fee into the repair because they've already okayed the testing fee with the customer ahead of time. So do you now hopefully that- someday when I sell, like they continue to do that. But yeah. do you ever think they ever have a light bulb moment and they go, my God, how much money did I not make? the last five years because I was just rolling that, you know what I mean? Like we all see the the owners talk about this and that and the other thing, but man, that like, that would make me want to just like cry into my hands. You know, if I thought all of a sudden now I have all these customers that will pay and for years I didn't charge for. Yeah. Like that's a sickening amount of money when you think about it. Right. And it gets even worse when they're like, well, I'm 80 bucks an hour, let's say. And I'm like, your customer just okayed $180 an hour. Mm-hmm. Like they, you know, so just throwing those numbers out there, whether that's what they are or not, but like realizing that, okay, this is what I thought I could charge. And now all of a sudden I'm charging this and the customer is still okaying it. And I'm like, they okayed this amount. Like yeah. this was two hours of testing or whatever. Like 
and they and a lot of times they don't even sometimes they know I'm there. Other times they don't know that I'm there. The shop calls me and then they quote it out to their customer and I'm like, You're getting X amount <laughs> per hour because of me, but on your own you don't think you deserve it and your customer won't pay it. But I'm proving that they do. And after they do that for, you know, a year of using it or something, they're like do you think I could charge more? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you think? You're obviously charging more when I'm here and they're not batting an eye at it. So yeah, you could charge more. Like, do you think Tanner, you doing that is, is kind of, cause I've asked a couple of the other guests on here. Are you keeping some of the shops that maybe should be, uh, I don't want to definitely, definitely. Yeah. I know where you're going. Keeping shops that should be closed going. Well, so and understand, I'm not faulting I, I, you for doing it, right? It's not a no. You're I, you're good. It's not a I, every <laughs> everyone asks me this. You're good. So I would say some guys definitely do, and I would say that I do have a handful of shops that I'm definitely keeping alive. But those shops that are the handful that I'm keeping alive, I've already had that conversation with them. Of look you need to be considering retirement. Mm -hmm. Like we are moving towards that and looking at selling your business. So again, with me, I'm very much partnering with my shops, trying to help them. I have guys that are ready for retirement. I have guys that are looking to buy shops that are my age. So I try to bring them together. I've tried to work out a couple different deals with them. So the shops that are just waiting out their time, they know. And like, we're very open with each other about like, you need to be looking at selling. You need to be considering this. There's some shops that I go to that I'm like, and I'll only go like one or two times. I walk in them and I'm like, this shop should not be operating at all. And I just cut them off and I had to cut one off last year that was like that. He used me three times, all three times. I told him, I said, look, I'd prefer you go get some training. And we kept talking about it. Finally, the third time I told him I couldn't help him anymore. And three months later, the doors closed and that was mm-hmm. the end of his business. So, you know, the ones that I guess are good people that I know are, have they've had a shop for 40 years, let's say, you know, they were a successful business person. They're at the end you know of their career and now i'm helping them to stay there until they can retire which is in another couple of years and then we'll take that shop and sell that shop i'll help them sell it to somebody else there's a couple of the shops that uh, won't get sold they're literally waiting for the city to buy them they're multi-million dollar properties that the cities are going to buy so they're like i got to make it to 65 so i can collect you know insurance or medicaid or whatever so I'm helping them get to that point, but the shops that are like really bad that are like, ah, they got another 20 years ahead of them. I don't really help those shops. The other thing I do, and I've done a terrible job of it lately. When I moved here, I was also teaching for CarQuest in this area uh, and then WorldPack and stuff. So I have done, I stopped doing that a couple of years ago, kind of pre COVID Eventually, I'll go back and start doing more of that. So all of my shops will be participating in training too. So the shops that I'm kind of like, I guess that I would consider that need help will be not forced into getting training, but just like everything else, I'll kind of back them into that and say, hey, we're having this. It's going to be a night of hanging out and everyone's going to come. But by the way, we're going to do an hour class first and then we'll all hang out. And so they'll all eventually... It's kind of gets like more out of it. They're going to be around you and they're going to get immersed into it, whether they like it or not. 
it's exactly it sounds kind of like you're almost like a matchmaker for you know people that are getting out and people that want to expand into their own business right that's kind of a it's a neat spin on that, really. That's the networking thing, right? You, you know, a younger person that wants to buy a shop, you know, an older person that wants to get rid of one. It's, I never thought of that. That's a, it's a neat angle. Yeah. Yeah. And I've gotten a lot of shops. Uh, I had two or three shops come to Vision this year. Um, AST, I had like five or six shops come to AST. I joke all the time that eventually for probably Vision and SEMA, We'll like charter a private jet. We'll get enough people and charter a private jet and go to it. So that's the other thing. And right now, I just made a change with the business to uh, I changed the business phone so that I could send out text messages and it not be flagged. So the goal will be uh, any big training events, we'll send out text messages to all my shops and say, hey, this is going on just so you're aware. Mm Um, and then we'll start doing local training too in the like uh, South Carolina, North Carolina area. A lot of this stuff's kind of waiting till I'm done with my house. Probably November ish, my house will be done. So once that's done, then we'll start doing a lot more training. But the goal is to force all those shops that are the shops that I would like argue that I'm keeping alive. We'll force them into uh, becoming better shops. Mm-hmm. You've been to Lucas's new facility. Uh, I have not been up to it since it's finished. So he's about two hours north of me, eh, two and a half hours north of me. I was up there quite a few times while it was being built. I haven't been up since it was finished. He says you're not a fan of driving in those mountains. He says that's really (laughs) something you're really super keen on, right? Lucas has that reputation of being like a little bit of a nut behind the wheel, right? And I've never, I was sitting in the back of when we were at AST, I was riding in the back and David was white knuckling and I was just like, what's the big deal? Like, I don't, Lucas drives the way I drive. So, and Lucas is, what he said is that for the most part, he was pretty restrained that night. He wasn't nearly, you know, so, but he said that you guys have had some fun drives together. So, so he lit a truck on fire with me. That was the first one. Uh, That was unintentional. We were driving a customer's vehicle for a, like, drivability problem and it had two bad coils and dumped so much fuel into the cats that it lit the cats on fire when we stopped at the gas station pulled up to the gas pump so that was one and then the other one he has this had a jeep up there that the frame is rotted out on and so are all the brake lines now obviously most of the rest of the southern people don't understand that's a thing me being from the north i'm like look this thing potentially has no brakes Mm -hmm. well behind his shop he has this hill that you go up it's a mountains he lives in the mountains you go up this mountain and it's a goat path that goes up the mountain where he parks all these dead cars so he's like oh yeah you're just going to drive this jeep down we're going to take it to the school and donate it because the frame is rotted out and the brake lines are rotted out and i'm like that's fine and dandy, but I got to bring this thing down a mountain and there's no brakes. <laughs> and he's like, to this day, he's like, oh, there's brakes. I'm like, there was sort of brakes, like what was left of the reserve pedal that had left. <laughs> like that was it. And I didn't know where I was going. Right. So yeah, he likes to pick on me about that, but he lives up. So he's about probably 5,000 foot elevation, okay. 5,800 foot. Cause Mount Mitchell that's near him is 6,800, but the two ski resorts that are next to him, I think are like between five and 5,800 feet of elevation. So he's up there quite a ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in the mountains here, but I'm only at like roughly used thousand to like 2,500 foot of elevation. Yeah. So, but yeah, so he's in the, he's in the middle of, well, kind of the middle of nowhere. Boone's a, 
nice like quaint little town and yeah mm-hmm. he's uh i'm trying to make a road trip maybe to go down for the for the barbecue on the fourth for oh you should do it because i will be up there i'm gonna go up there on the fourth so if you do it it's the anybody that's listening to this the drive through the mountains I, I talked about taking like time off and taking weekends off just getting out and driving finding some place to drive that was another like big reason of why we ended up where we are driving through the mountains the stuff that you can see like i don't know it's very different people don't think about north carolina as being a mountainous area but man is it mountainous and you know beautiful beautiful scenery and it's definitely worth doing 